Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We were delighted to catch up with the wonderful surgeon educator, Dr. Jonathan White. Dr. White, as many people will know, is a colorectal surgeon at Royal Alexandra Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta, and is the creator and co-founder of Surgery 101 Podcasts. This wildly popular educational podcast aimed at medical students has reached millions and millions of views, and Dr. White is obviously an innovator when it comes to medical education. Dr. White recently took a sabbatical and went back to his home country of Ireland. And so we wanted to catch up with him about his career, his sabbatical, and really get his thoughts on the next generation of surgical education. So please sit back and enjoy our conversation with Dr. Jonathan White. Can you tell us out of the gate, you know, where you grew up? Of course, our, our audience that maybe doesn't know you as well as uh, Amir and I do, uh, we'll, we'll sense your accent. Where, where did you grow up and where did you do your training? So uh, I was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, actually. Um, right at the, I, I was actually born in the Belfast City Hospital and grew up close to the Shankill Road, right at the start of the Troubles in, in Northern Ireland. So right at the start of that kind of 30-year period of all the conflict between the Protestants and the Catholics and the IRA and the British government and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, so that's basically where I'm from. That's where my... Where, where my home is. Um, we actually got out of Belfast because it was very rough. I mean, kind of probably when I was five or six, my parents said, look, this is just getting too much and the bombings and the shootings is just too much. So we decided to move down the coast to a little town called Carrickfergus, but 11 or 12 miles east of Belfast on the shores of the Belfast Lock. So that's pretty much where the whole the whole uh, tribe is currently. And I'm the only one who's really moved away any, any distance. So at that point, um, Northern Ireland only had one medical school, which was Queen's University in Belfast. So I decided to go to Queen's to do medicine. Uh, so I got my, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's an, like an MD equivalent you get in the UK. So I got an MD BCHBAO. So apparently I am a Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery and a Bachelor, believe it or not, of the art of obstetrics. Uh, and then I also did a, I did like an, an extra, what they call an intercalated degree in medical science there, there, uh, uh, pharmacology and therapeutics. So I, actually did six years in medical school and then I got out and my first job was at the at the Belfast City Hospital place where I was born um that would have been 1993 I suppose and I did my my first year which would have been when I was the, the British term would be a houseman when I was a houseman equivalent to kind of a PGY1 I did I think four months surgery four months geriatrics and four months cardiology and I hadn't hadn't really planned to go into surgery um, but those four months, those first four months as a PGY1 really changed my mind and really kind of made a big impact on me. So I applied for the general surgery programs. Uh, I did a bit of time in smaller hospitals, I'd kind of in, in some of the regional hospitals before I came back into to Belfast again. And I did four years of kind of basic surgical training, moving around all the different jobs. And then I did six years of uh, what's called higher surgical training, which is quite quite regulated and quite controlled by the colleges in the in the UK. So the first three years of that was all general surgery. Then the last three years was just pure pure colorectal. And then in the middle of all that, I did a PhD by 
by research as well. So I spent three years doing research in a, in a lab to get a, a PhD looking at um, actually bil biliary obstruction and gastrointestinal uh, barrier function. Um, so that's basically how I, how I got my training. Well, that's such an amazing breadth of, of, of domains and, and of training. It's, it's interesting. If I take you on a little departure, I, I'm curious, you know, growing up in Ireland at that time, as you, as you point out, which was certainly uh, colorful and potentially scary, I guess, from afar, how, how does that inform, maybe not necessarily your overall life, but how did it impact your training? How does it impact you in terms of being a practicing surgeon or, or does it? Uh, I, I think it, it, it definitely does. And it's probably had different impacts at different points in my life. Like I would say when I first came to Canada and when I first came to Edmonton, uh, I think for the first 10 or 12 years when I was here, we had to cover trauma. Um, and I had no trauma training. So you were just operating on people and kind of trying to do your best. At least no formal trauma training. Things are different now, obviously. Um, and, and back then, I mean, I had, I may not have a trauma training but I had trauma experience because we were used to seeing people who'd come in you know soldiers who'd been in helicopter crash whenever their helicopter got hit by a, an RPG or something or uh, I remember looking after people who'd been shot by snipers from like a mile away and some IRA snipers who tried to blow somebody's head off um, so we we saw some really really bad stuff um, I, luckily I mean obviously I'm, I'm, I'm too young to have been involved in the early years of the trouble um, back in the seventies, but still in the in the nineties when I was starting to train, it was still pretty bad. Um, we still had a few years to go until the IRA called the called the ceasefire. Um, so I, I would have regarded myself as a bit of a battle hardened veteran, having seen all those bombs and bullets and stuff. Uh, now I think with a bit more distance from it, as, especially as I get older, and especially as I speak to some some people like my parents who actually did live through it. I mean, they were born in the what, 40s. So they, this was the middle of their life that they, that the troubles happened. Uh, really, a lot of people are still very traumatized by the whole thing. There are still a lot of people who are, you know, they won't go into certain parts of Belfast because they're Protestant and the area is Catholic, or they still kind of look under the card, you know, every, every morning to check to see if there's a bomb there. Um, even though there's no chance of there being a bomb all these, all these years later. So it, it, it really makes me think that attitude of just saying, oh, it's just trauma. It, 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 it's not really acceptable anymore. And certainly when we see people who, who come in, who've been stabbed and shot and all the different traumatic things that happen in, in Edmonton, you really have to think there's a long-term impact of that. It's not just, I'm going to sew up your colon or I'm going to take out your spleen and move on. There's a, there's a longer kind of lasting impact of trauma like that. Yeah, I certainly couldn't agree more. That's that's really interesting. You, you know, you you describe beautifully your your pathway through training and and your voyage really around a large part of the world. I'm curious though. You know, you've done a lot of really interesting and neat things that I'm hopeful we'll talk about here in the next little bit in Edmonton. How did you end up specifically in Edmonton, and what does your current job look like today? And and how is it morphed from when you started just over a decade ago there? Yeah, well, I, I had no idea I was going to end up in Canada or in Edmonton. I had never heard of Edmonton. Um, so at the end of your training in the UK, you are expected to take something called the, the year away. So you're supposed to basically get out of the country. Uh, we'll keep paying your salary, but go and learn something somewhere else in the world and come back. So um, I had talked to some of my colleagues and I had offers on the table from places like Adelaide, 
and in Johannesburg, and I think um, the Queen Mary Hospital in, in, in Hong Kong at one point. So those were all places I was considering going. I also applied to col uh, colorectal, I think, in Toronto, and then I applied to uh, surgical oncology in, in Calgary. Um, this, was, this would have been uh, 2004. And I think I, I went, to, my wife and I went to Toronto in person for the interviews, but then uh, I think the Calgary thing was a few weeks later and we couldn't afford two flights. So we decided, I decided to do the, the interview for Calgary over the, over the phone. Um, so I just did it in a, in like a, I think it was like a, a patient's room, actually. <laughs> I did my fellowship interview for Calgary and, uh, didn't think too much about it. You know, didn't put too much pressure on it. Thought, well, I'll, I'll get, I'll get an answer from one of these places, right? And then came back home one night and there was a letter lying on the, on the mat at the front door and it said you've been accepted for for this program in Calgary, a place where I had never been. Um, and I realized when I opened the letter, my wife looked at it, she said, there's a, there's a typo here because it says it's for two years. And I realized I'd forgotten to tell her it was for two years instead of just one year because I thought I, w I wasn't going to get it, right? Um, so uh, so she spent a few months telling me she wasn't going to go, but then she, finally she decided she would go with me. So we, we landed there, what, June 20th, 2024, I think, um, and worked in Calgary for, for two years as a, as a Sir Junk fellow. Um, I was in a slightly different situation to some of the other fellows because in order to get into the country, you have to have a letter from the program to, to say what your salary will be so you can get a work permit. So I had this very nice letter that said I would get $50,000 a year. But when I actually showed up, the program director sat me down and said, I'm terribly sorry, but there is no money. Um, so there's no salary for you for these two years. So I ended up having to do, I think they called it fellow call at the foothills. So there was basically the staff and a medical student and me on call for um for general surgery in the in the foothills when I in the foothills when I did fellow call. So the, the nice thing about it was a bit bit of a surprise not to have any money. Um but the nice thing about it was I had a very flexible time in the fellowship. So basically because I wasn't getting paid and I wasn't an employee, I could kind of structure it the way that I wanted to. So I ended up doing quite a bit of pelvic oncology and colorectal oncology, a little bit of breast, a little bit of uh, sarcoma, I think. And then I also did, um, I think in the in the first year, I did a course, like a master's course on, on tumor biology. And that was fine, but it wasn't it wasn't for me. And then in the second year, I, I think, I remember the program director just said, I don't care what you do, just pick some course, just go and do it. So I was walking down the corridor and they had a, a poster on the wall that said master's program in medical education. So I, I signed up for that. Um, so I, I started that while I was there. Uh, I, I was interested in staying. I mean, I, I had a, had a job that was kind of earmarked for me back home in Belfast, but I thought, well, why not explore some options here in North America while I'm here? So, uh, I chatted to some of the folks in Calgary. I went up to Edmonton actually to give a talk on, on rectal cancer at the headquarters of the Alberta Cancer Board. And at the back of the room was this British trained surgeon from the Royal Alexandria in Edmonton who ha was happy happened to be looking for a new colleague. It turned out one of his colleagues had just retired un unexpectedly and they were trying to fill this, this gap on the team. Um, so he, he and I had a chat. He said, we must get you to come up again to have a few meetings. So I came up again a few weeks later to meet with some surgeons and I kind of had this meeting with the dean as well. And I kind of, I wasn't expecting to meet the dean at the U of A. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a I got an email to say, congratulations, you've, you've got the job. And I hadn't really realized 
being British, I kind of thought it would be a more formal application process, but it turned out that was the application process. And here I was employed on the on the uh, academic track as a as an assistant professor in surgery. Um, so we so I, I gave up the job back home. I decided my wife and I decided to stay here just to see what happened. And then you know time passed. Um, we got busy. We applied for permanent residency because you have to get off your work permit eventually. And when you get your permanent residency form, they have this little form they put in the back, which is basically an application form for citizenship. And we and because we're just kind of because we like to get things done and get them ticked off the list, we just filled in the citizenship forms and sent them back. And then several years passed, and then suddenly we just got a, a letter in the mail to say your citizenship test is is next week. And that's when it actually hit us. Like that's when it, we actually sat down and took a breath and realized like this is our home now you know like you don't apply for a citizenship test in a place where you're just staying for a couple of years so that's when we realized we weren't we weren't going going back home again um so in terms of the of the role and how it's changed i mean there were nine of us actually when i started at the royal alexandra so basically i'm a general surgeon with a colorectal interest and uh there were two of us at that point, myself and, and Art Plus. We basically ran all the colorectal stuff at the at the hospital. And then in the other part of my life, I was the senior director for undergraduate medical education. And we had just, we'd been through a pretty difficult time at the U of A because the accreditation people had been, and they'd put us on notice to, or intend to withdraw as a medical school. So we were in such big trouble um, because of lots of problems with curriculum. So when I came in and they said, hey, we want you to restructure the surgery curriculum and, you, and you're just finishing this master's in medical education. It seemed like I was just the just the right person at the right time with the right skill set. So I spent quite a bit of time then in the first five years putting in all this new curriculum in surgery and changing all the learning objectives and kind of bringing it up and uh, up to speed with kind of modern educational practice. Um, so I did that for five years and was pretty successful. The The school actually improved quite a bit. And I think for three years in a row, we, we got like the top marks in surgery in the in the, in the country, like our, our graduates. It seemed we were making some kind of a some kind of an impact. Uh, for the second five years, then I actually got a couple of people to come in and, and, and run the actual courses for me. So there was a, somebody ran the third year of clerkship in general surgery and the fourth year of clerkship in, in specialty surgery. And then I got appointed as the endowed chair in surgical education. So basically I had uh, a team that could then help me do education research and develop more curriculum materials. So that's, that's how we started the whole surgery 101 project. Um, so that, that finished, I think I, I probably finished my, role in undergrad education maybe 20 2017 something like that and um i ended up getting recruited or seconded over into alberta health services to become the um senior medical director for the the surgery strategic clinical network which is basically running surgery planning for the whole province so i've been doing that for the last um five or six years and still I mean still still doing clinical practice I mean officially on paper I think I'm 0.5 or 0.6 or something but um, I'm still in the hospital still operating still taking calls still doing all the things you would you would expect people to do that the nice thing is that there's now uh, I say there was nine people when I started now there's there's 14 of us at the Royal Alexandra and it's a mixture of uh, some bariatric folks some colorectal folks some trauma folks some upper GI surgical oncology folks as well and the nice thing is I don't need to do trauma call anymore because we actually have our own trauma service. Yeah, it's amazing how much things change on so many of the topics that you that you touch there. 
You know, you, you mentioned Surgery 101, and, and you were certainly one of the first or early adopter surgeons in terms of podcasting uh, in Canada and really, really the globe. T- tell us about Surgery 101. Tell us about your entry into podcasting and how that, how that genesis uh, uh, occurred. So I think I, I had been to a workshop at the U of A. Um, this would have been probably t- 2007. And it was somebody just talking about podcasting in, in, in general. Um, and again, I'm, I'm in the middle of, you know, restructuring the surgery curriculum and trying to figure out how you can actually get the material delivered to students. Um, and that kind of rang a bell with me because I, I'm kind of interested in, in uh, technology. Like I'm the first person that I know who had an email address. I'm the first person I know who had a wiki or a blog. I'm the first person I know who, who bought the iPod. Like I, I bought first generation iPod when it came out and I bought all the other generations after that as well. So I kind of thought, is there a way that you could match these two things together? They don't seem to go together, but, but something about surgery with the podcast format. And uh, in fact, if, if you go back in, in history, then none of this is new. Uh, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, people were doing educational projects on tape. Like they literally, they would record a lecture on tape and then they would give the student the tape and then the student would listen to it. So this idea of speaking and then listening is actually very, very old. Um, so I, I was kind of, I think I went and I gave rounds at, at the Department of Surgery at that point to say, this is one of the things I'm thinking about. And then Parveen Burrow came up to me afterwards. So he was a PG by four at that point. He's not a general surgeon down in Lethbridge. And Parveen said, hey, I've got this elective time coming up. I want to come and spend four weeks with you. And I want us to make some podcasts together. And he was the person who really gave the project a kick in the ass because I was kind of thinking maybe we should do this sometime. But he said, yeah, I want to do this. So we, we, we picked like, I think we picked nine big topics in general surgery, which were totally uncontroversial and just like the bread and butter of general surgery, like appendicitis and bowel obstruction and hernias, breast cancer, different things. And and Parveen recorded the first nine episodes. And I, I did a little episode at the start to say, what the hell is this and how should you use it? And I remember <laughs> one of my colleagues actually said to me, when he heard we were doing this thing, he said, um, I, I know what you should do. He said you should like, but there, at that point we had 125 medical students. It's more now, 125. So, uh, you should burn 125 CDs and just hand them out through, through the year or get 125 little memory sticks and put them on a memory stick and just give it to the students. And I said, you know what? I'm too lazy to do that. Who has got the time to burn 125 CDs? Like, like boring. I'm not going to do that. Um, so th- there was this thing called the iTunes store, which had just come out. It wasn't very, it wasn't very old at that point. So I said, let's just stick it on the, on the iTunes store and we'll give students the link and then they can del- download it all they like. So, um, and Parveen and I did a little study on it and the students liked it and that was great. We thought we'd move on at that point. Um, but whenever you put something on the iTunes store, they ask you to put in a contact email address. So we started getting emails. Um, to say, I, I really liked your episode on whatever, you know, appendicitis or breast cancer, but can you make one on pancreatitis or can you make one on, you know, benign prostatic hypertrophy? And we were, we weren't just getting emails from our own students. We were getting emails from all over the world. Like I got an email from some guy in, in Brazil and some guy in Germany and some guy in Romania asking us to make new episodes. So clearly this had kind of slipped out of our control a bit. And now it was going all around the world and people were asking for, for, for more stuff. Um, so, th- so the nice thing about it is that 
you know, I don't know much about benign prostatic hypertrophy, but I have a friend who does. So I was able to phone up Keith Rourke in neurology and say, hey, Keith, I've got this weird project. Can you give me like 15 minutes? Just talk for 15 minutes about benign prostatic, prostatic hypertrophy. And that's really how the ball got rolling. So the student said, can you make this for us? And we said yes. And off we went. And eventually we had the entire curriculum covered. Like, like eventually we, we, we looked at every single learning objective in the curriculum and made sure there was a podcast for everything. So now we're at something like uh, 300 different uh, or more than 300 episodes now. And we also got, um, we, we've kind of followed students as they've, as they've moved through this. So basically we got some students in and they said, how about some video, you know? And we said, well, it's a podcast. It's not a video. Like, what are you talking about? Um, so we did some work with them and then we actually started to make videos um, centered around surgical education. So that's why we have Lego surgery and Muppet surgery. There's a couple of episodes like based on Star Trek, uh, a couple of episodes based on, on zombies as well. So real, we've really just been following where the, where the students have been leading. And I, and I think I'm, I'm not sure if we're up to 10 million yet. I think we're, we're somewhere pretty close to it now. Um, we're up to something like nine and a half million downloads, um, worldwide. And I think, We've got downloads in every single country except Greenland, I think. Um, I used to say Greenland and North Korea, but now we actually have downloads in North Korea as well. So, um, and it is, it's kind of striking. I mean, sometimes I will, um, I recently walked into a room of medical students in another country um, that I had never met before. And within five minutes, one of the students said, are you, are, are you the Dr. White? And I'm like, well, I'm a Dr. White. What do you mean? And he said, are you the surgery 101 guy? And I had done no preparation. I hadn't told him I was coming. I just walked into the room and told him my name. And I spoke a little bit. And I think they recognized the voice. So it really makes you realize that the technology allows you to reach right across the world very easily. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You, you know, the, the platform in itself is is obviously... You know, has the potential to be so powerful across so many topics and, and so many scenarios. It's it's quite neat. You know, on, on that, then you've always been known. I would say, you know, coming to to my mind here, Morad Hamid and yourself really give uh, uh, excellent multimedia, visually um, uh, pleasing uh, talks. Um, you're always engaging. You always deliver that well. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about how modern education whether at the undergraduate level or at the cme level in general can integrate multimedia into their curriculum into their presentations into their their, their course outlines yeah i i think that's a that's a very important question because I, I was talking to some students a while ago and i was talking about you know millennials and there is this there is this certain idea that millennials are more facile with technology and they want things quicker and they want things more at their fingertips. And the student said to me, you don't need to worry about me, she said. You need to worry about my little sister who's also going to come to medical school five or 10 years from now. And she said, like, my little sister doesn't do anything that's not digital. Like, everything is digital, 100%. And if you can't get it inside 15 seconds, she's not interested. Um, so I, I think just saying to saying to students, as I've seen some of my colleagues do in the past, you know, you need to read more or, you know, here is a textbook, go and read that. That's just not going to cut the mustard anymore. Um, so my my advice is if you're serious about this, 
be focused on what you're actually going to try and deliver. Like, I, I know it's it's boring and it's old fashioned, but use learning objectives. Like say, after you have engaged with this presentation, you will be able to do this, 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 and this. And, and don't, and like not a lot of learning objectives, like two or, two or three things. And then um, be brief, be bright, be gone. Like give students what they need quickly. Like if you look at most of the Surgery 101 episodes, like the best ones are about 10 minutes, maybe 12 minutes. Beyond that, beyond 15 minutes, people are going to stop listening. People have probably already stopped listening to this podcast we're making already because we're kind of boring, you know. Um, so be be specific. Use those use those learning objectives. Like hit the things you got to hit. Um, I I I like the uh, the paradigm of the the old kind of Presbyterian preacher who stands up in the pulpit and he says, "I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you." You know, I'm going to just hammer it away. I'm going to say these are the that. three things you need to remember. Like just these, like try and keep it simple. And then the the, the other piece of advice I, I would say is, like in terms of being engaging, like you you have to grab people in the first maybe 15 seconds and engage people and illustrate why it's important and and say this is practical and you will need this stuff. Like every single time we do a podcast, we say why do students need to know this? Because if you can't answer that question, we're not making the, the podcast. I mean, um, Aristotle talked about phronesis, which is practical wisdom. Like, what should I do in this particular situation? So tell some stories from your own practice about a time when you saw a patient like this and what happened and how you managed it and, and how the patient got better or, or didn't get better. Like, share something of yourself. Um, and tell a little story because all the things that I remember from from practice, all the little things that I learned as I was going along, each of them are linked to a particular patient and a particular story I remember, a particular time of my life. So stories are super important for for supporting learning. And and the and the last thing is like, and and again, I have some of my colleagues who who have difficulty with this bit. Try and make it a little bit fun. Like, don't be so serious. Don't be so boring sometimes. Sometimes people can be very stodgy and very starchy about these things. Like, try and be a little bit relaxed. Surgery is not all serious all the time, which is why we ended up having fun with Muppets and Lego and zombies and all that kind of stuff. Oh, it's so fantastic. I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of, you know, when you mention about being short and snappy and, and, and grabbing the, the listener or the, the audience quickly, how do you reconcile that with some of the popularity of long form podcasts? And obviously I think, you know, the biggest one in the world at my own political risk would be a, a Joe Rogan, but how, how do you, is there a role for the longer form delivery of CME of, of undergraduate content or, or is it really exclusive to uh, sort of, uh, you know, pick and pop uh, shorter scenarios? Well, I, I think you need to kind of put yourself in the shoes of the of, of the medical student. Like they're not just learning surgery at medical school, they're learning all sorts of things. So, and, and in fact, if you look at, uh, there's at least one medical school in Canada. I was talking to a guy from there and he said, he said, podcasts are the worst things in the world. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, we just went overboard and we made thousands of them. For like every single topic it could be in medical school and and we require students to listen to them and the and the system that we have uh, shows students listen to them and we can track the whole thing and he said they're spending so much time listening to all this you know online material they're not spending any time on the wards so so i, I think you've got to kind of 
put that in, 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 the, in, the, in the frame as well to say you need to have a balance. And whenever we did our first episode, What is Surgery 101? We said, this is not everything. Like you need to go to the hospital. You need to talk to your surgeon. You need to see some patients. This is just to, to, to support learning. And it's supposed to be, like I'm imagining, student gets a phone call in their call room to say, go and see this patient with appendicitis. And they go, I don't know what to do. And then they listen to this podcast for like 10 minutes as they're, as they're walking down to see the patient. And as soon as they, they go there, then, then they've got the basic information to kind of survive the first, the first five minutes with the patient. The, the long form thing is, is more interesting because it, it requires some investment. And I think all of us, I mean, anybody who's watched Netflix or Amazon Prime or Disney knows what it means to engage with a, with a long form drama. And it's got to have something. I mean, my, my wife and I, you know, will sometimes watch the first episode of something and just go, nah, nah. Like it's, I watch it for 10 minutes and nothing interesting has happened yet. Like there has to be, there has to be a, a kind of a compelling setup. Like you have to have the, I, I've, I've done a little bit of work in, in, in screenwriting. So you have to have this kind of establishing scene, which is interesting. You then have to have some kind of a protagonist that comes along that you can identify with. And then you have to have an, an inciting incident, you know, where something exciting happens. And you don't quite know what, what happens. Um, and that's, that's the kind of spark that lights your interest in the story. And then you're going to carry it along. And if it's a good story, then you will follow it along. Um, over time in long form drama. And this is why people watch like all seven seasons of The Sopranos or all six seasons of Breaking Bad or whatever. That, that's a different, that's a different value proposition than I need to know a little bit about the surgical topic I know not, nothing about. So I think if, if there are, I'm, I'm trying to think, do I, do I know of any good examples of kind of longer form medical education things? I, I suppose actually it, it might be useful um probably is more useful as you get more senior and you're more specialized like there yeah. was a there was a video it was like an hour-long video i was watching recently about oh rectal mucosal advancement flats or something like there's almost nobody in the world looked at from a from a large distance almost nobody in the world needs, needs to know about that but I, mm -hmm. i'm one of those people so i'm happy to spend an hour of my time like you know, listening to other experts talk about this thing to figure out how I can improve my practice a bit. But I think like that, or, or sometimes there, there's some good ICU podcasts where somebody's talking about the treatment of COVID-19 for 45 minutes at a time. So I think if, if you've got that, if you've got that kind of desire to learn in depth about a single topic, that can be good. But I'm, I'm not sure we have that for most medical students. Yeah, that makes total sense. You know, you recently took a, a sabbatical, relatively recently, to establish the undergraduate surgical curriculum for your alma mater in Ireland. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you made that decision? Because it just sounds totally fascinating. Yeah, so, I mean, as, as you can tell, probably over the course of my career, I, I've been like the boy, the boy who can't say no. Somebody says, would you like to try this or would you like to have a go at that? And I generally say yes. So, um I think there was there was an episode of uh, Star Trek Discovery a little while ago where somebody was talking about um, uh, if you know uh, one of the characters Burnham is is described as being a a responsibility hoarder like taking on all these responsibilities and not letting go of them so I think I've probably been a bit of that over the course of my career um, and I've taken on responsibilities both at the university well department level and university level and hospital level and then at the provincial level as well and it is a little bit. I, I wouldn't say I was burned out, but I think it, it's just tiring and it's kind of sometimes overwhelming holding so many roles and you spend your whole life kind of running from, from pillar to post. 
Um, I know my my secretary, for, for instance, or my assistant Tracy would sometimes look at my cal- my calendar and say, like, I just feel sick looking at your calendar because there's no gaps in it. You know, like I I recently um, I recently took a a big step and like scheduled lunch. Like I actually put a little thing in every lunchtime and said you should have lunch because I, I wasn't in the practice of doing that. And um, and certainly, I mean, if you look at some of the of the provincial work that I'm doing, that work can just eat you up. You know, with the work with the surgery SCN, you're spending so much time. Like I I visited 28 different hospitals in the province in person and spent a day at each hospital and kind of went round. So there's the you can kind of throw yourself into the work. Um, so so probably two or three years ago, I I was reading people like uh, David Brooks and and a guy called Richard Rohr, um, some books by those guys. And I came across this idea of the of the of the second mountain, climbing the second mountain. So the the basic idea is that the the first mountain, and this is this is not just for professionals and careers. This is kind of in your life in general. The first mountain is kind of establishing yourself and being successful and having a career and you know being secure and money and housing and you know family, all that kind of stuff. And and that's what people focus on for the first kind of half, maybe even two thirds of their life. But at some point you have to accept you've probably got as high on that mountain as you're going to get. You're probably at the top of that mountain. And as you're standing at the top of that mountain through the clouds, you actually see the second mountain, which is a different mountain and it's kind of a higher mountain. And you're kind of thinking, right, what's all that about? So it's really kind of a metaphor for the first and second half of life. So I started thinking, well, what am I going to do now that I've, now that I've, like, I'm, I'm a full professor. I've got tenure at the U of A. Like, there's no, I've reached the top and I've had to stop. And that's what's bothering me. Um, so w- what do you do next after you've, after you've kind of got to the top of that, of that first mountain? And a lot of people don't realize that they're climbing a mountain. A lot of people don't even realize there is a second mountain, according to some of the people who write about this. Um, so as I say, I got tenure. It turns out that you're allowed to take an academic sabbatical every, every six years. I really hadn't thought too much about that because it's not something that surgeons do. Although I did become a 3M National Teaching Fellow a few years ago. And I mean, my my cohort, there's professors of chemistry, there's professors of law, there's professors of, of religion and things like that. And they're all taking sabbaticals. So I kind of started to think maybe it's time for me to take a break. And I, and I guess the... The two main reasons were, first thing, I'm very lucky and privileged that I, I'm actually in this position where I'm able to do it. Like there is some expectation that it's okay to do it and you do get some salary support. Like the university would keep on paying me 90% of my uh, of my salary while I was away on sabbatical. And then the second big reason was it, it was just time. I mean, we'd been away for home for, from home for such a long time what it was 2022 then we took the sabbatical so i guess it, it had been eight, 18 years since we had since we had left um home um originally and everybody's getting older i mean my my parents are about 78 both of them and paula's paula's mother's 82 and her dad's 78 so we kind of thought it's time to go home and spend some time with family before they get too much older and also i think in the in the back of our mind we kind of thought if if there's some if there's some desire to go home at some point, this might be a good way to kind of test it, test it out. So I think those those are the main reasons why we decided it's it's time to take a break.
the kind of official work that I was doing while I was away, there's kind of two, I think there's two sides of any sabbatical if you're serious about it. One is the kind of official story that you tell people. And then one's the, the unofficial story of what, of what really happened. So the official story was for the first six months, I was working with uh, a new medical school, actually. So I said Queens in Belfast was the, the one medical school. It's about 172 years old. Um, they just started this new medical school at Ulster University, which is based up in, in, in Derry, which is kind of the second city up in the northwest of Northern Ireland. So they had asked me to come and help out with that. And so I had developed a study to basically um, look at how the new medical school was getting up and running. And I asked people, uh, actually asked students and staff members and faculty um, and leadership as well, like what was the story behind this? What was the history of the whole thing? And um, like, what what how do you how do you really form a new medical school in the year 2022? So that was interesting. I, I took a couple of months to get ethics approval for that. And uh, then I did a whole bunch of interviews. I also went up and visited with the students and I, I, I sat in with them for a week. So basically, I sat in on all their PBL tutorials and their lectures and their labs and different things as well. Um, so that, that was fun. And in the second six months of the of the sabbatical, the the official project was I was working at at my alma mater at Queens, uh, looking actually at at, uh, at, at post conflict topics because the interesting bit about training in, in Northern Ireland is you're in the middle of all this, right? You're in the middle of the bombs exploding and the bullets flying, but nobody ever talked about it in the medical school, not even a single time. And even all these years later, we're still dealing with all these consequences of the conflict, but nobody's talking about it. So I've actually got a, a study that's running at the moment. It's kind of run over the end of the sabbatical, um, looking at how the medical school is dealing with things like the conflict and dealing with things like uh, reconciliation, because there's still a lot of stuff that's that's going on underneath the surface. Um, the, the, that's, the, that's the kind of official stuff that, that I did. Um, I had actually planned, I was going to do a, um, a graduate course in, in, in post-conflict studies, but that ended up not happening. I ended up uh, um, actually enrolling in a course called, uh, it's a postgraduate certificate called Healthcare Law for Non-Lawyers through Dalhousie. So I, I started work on that uh, towards the end of the, the actually September 2022 and I'll be finishing that in the in the next month or so so it's 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 really good actually learning about about law it's 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 super practical so those are the those two projects plus the the law course are kind of my official products from the from the sabbatical um unofficially and kind of how 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 it went down day to day I would say for the first for the first month or two, probably most the, the most common thing I was doing was was sleeping, um, because and I've, I've talked to some other people who've been on sabbatical as well. Uh, I think none of us realise just how common sleep disturbance is when you are a practicing surgeon, and it's not just when you're on call when people phone you in the middle of the night. It's just having to get up early and work in the evening and go to bed late, and nobody's sleeping well generally. So when that goes away. When all those responsibilities suddenly fall away, I think my body just reacted. So I, I was getting really good sleep, which was nice. Um, we were we were living actually we were living in this little house or little apartment over the uh, an ice cream shop in the town where my wife and I grew up together. Um, and we were like five minutes away from family. Like my parents lived five minutes one way and her parents five minutes the other way. So we we got a lot of free time with them. We got to just visit and, uh, and drop in with them. And uh, I think we were we were out walking probably by the sea 
like down by the harbour and along the front probably three or four times a day, which was nice. Uh, we got to do quite a bit of travelling as well. So I think we, we crisscrossed Ireland like several times. We, we decided to go, we're both interested in history, my wife and I, so we decided to go to places like, like Newgrange, and all the all all the Neolithic sites and some of the monastic sites, and we went across to the to the west, and we went to um, the middle of Ireland, and we went down to the south, and in, in in Cork as well, we went up to the northwest and in, in uh, Donegal as well. So we we did, we kind of crisscrossed the whole place, and and we did things that we had we'd meant to do when we were living there, but we'd never got round to. Like when you when you go to Newgrange, Newgrange is about it's a, it's a big kind of um, uh, passage grave. And, and we think it's, it's hard to tell, but we think it's about six, 6,000 years old. And it's so long ago, we don't even know who, who built it. And when you walk down the little passage into the, into the central chamber, it is like it's a, it's a mystical experience as an Irish person going to somewhere that's so old on, on the island. It's really interesting. We, we also went across to England. We went to places like Hadrian's Wall. We went to York and um, that sort of thing. Like, 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 like we stood on the, we stood on the piece of ground where Constantine found out he was going to be the emperor, the Roman Empire in, in, in the 300s. Uh, like we went, we went to Sycamore Gap in Hadrian's Wall where there was like a company of Syrian archers who were in the Roman army who, who held off the, the picks there and stopped them from evading and coming south. So we really got a, a lot of time to, to travel. And then in terms of the schedule, my, my wife stayed on as a, as a point five. She works for, um, for Alberta Health Services. So basically that means two and a half days a week we were, we were working. And that was roughly what I wanted to do as well. That's the advice I got from other people about, about sabbaticals. So I think every, every Tuesday we worked, uh, every other Wednesday we worked. And then every Thursday we worked as well. So basically we had Mondays off to travel and spend time with family and stuff. And then we had Fridays off as well. So basically I was kind of doing point five. Um, and I also got some time to do, you know, a lot of the things that I'd, I'd kind of forgotten that I, I enjoyed when I was working. So uh, a lot of reading. Uh, I, I've actually taken up the, the banjo. So I, I play called Clawhammer Banjo. So I, I brought the banjo with me. I did a lot of banjo while I was away. And then I actually have a um, I have a daily practice in, in, in Tai Chi and, and meditation. So I, I got to explore that quite a bit, did a bit more reading and, and meditation and, and was able to do meditation every every single day. That experience as a whole sounds productive, probably refreshing and rejuvenating and, and really quite amazing. I, I'm curious though, was there any struggles before, during or after? And, and what was the transition back into practice, back into your uh, environment at the ALEC at U of A like? Uh, I would say there there were a few struggles. So and it, it's it's and I I remember talking about to my wife about this in the in the early months of the sabbatical, and I, I kept on saying to her, I don't know if I'm doing it right. Like a, like I bet you there's somebody somewhere who's doing sabbatical better than I am. You know, like they're like they're 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 good at this, or they they feel like they know what they're doing, or they're being super productive and publishing all these papers. And she just said, like, 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 just stop it, like, just just relax and kind of get into it because it's it's not about doing it right. It's not about being the best person on sabbatical. I think you know there is. I think sometimes surgeons have this idea of kind of uh, I don't know about nomophobia, but I think they have normophobia. Like they, uh, they're, they're afraid of being seen as normal and they must always be number one at, at all times. So I, I had a bit of that pressure as well. Um, I, I think my, I think that the family had a little bit of kind of difficulty understanding 
because you know they don't really know what what the academic life is like and they really don't know what a sabbatical is so they were kind of just saying well you know you're a doctor aren't you going to be going seeing seeing patients every day and i'm like no and they're like well what do you do all day and i said well i just kind of do stuff and they said and they pay you for that yeah they do actually um like i work pretty hard over these years and, I, and i'm happy to just take a little bit of break and they keep paying me for it so you could see them kind of going really this doesn't sound right you know but they, they eventually got their head around it they the other thing was um it was it was quiet like compared to what my life is normally like in the hospital it was a little bit isolated it was a little bit quiet um sometimes if if you look at some of the writings about kind of people in in, in monasteries they talk about um uh, anchorites like these these monks who used to go on little cells and they would wall wall themselves up and they wouldn't speak to people um for years and years so i felt a little bit like a like an anchorite a little bit isolated a little bit quiet I'm not seeing hundreds of people a day. You know, I'm not walking through this busy hospital all the time. And also, I'm not making a hundred decisions every day. I'm not, I'm not rounding on my patients every day and looking at their blood tests and kind of doing this, 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 this. Everything got quiet and slow, which, which is nice. Um, so of course, coming back into practice, all that has to be reversed again, right? So, uh, I would say it's been, it's been slow coming back into practice. Like I, I, I came back. Um, just for for full disclosure, I had to had to finish the sabbatical a little bit early because towards the end of the sabbatical in September, my wife was actually diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, so we we had to basically manage that, and 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 she was we were away from home. Obviously, we weren't in Canada, um, so we basically had to come back a little bit sooner than we had uh, had expected. So um, it turned out it was good that it happened while I was on sabbatical because I got to be her her support system. So basically we came back at the end of September. We had to kind of wrap things up on sabbatical a little bit quicker than, than expected and, and come back home. So she ended up having her surgery in October and then she ended up having radiation treatment in January. So she's finished that now and she's really doing, she's doing really well actually. Um, but that, that's kind of slowed me down on my re-entry into practice again a, a little bit, because that's given me something else to think about too. So I, I started coming back into the hospital probably middle of, of December and I, I was just assisting. I was actually assisting my local as, my locum as we were, as she was finishing up. And then from January 1st, I've been in practice again. Uh, I'm a, a little bit kind of less than before because I'm still finishing up this law course but in a, in a month I'll be back to my normal schedule again once law is finished and it, it is just it's kind of seeing practice from a slightly different angle you know like I, I feel like I've kind of lost this this layer of kind of protective skin that I had on the on the outside and 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 it's kind of growing back again slowly again I'm not sure that I want it to grow back completely again um, because I think some of the things that we do in practice that we just let stuff go past us and we, we don't really let it, we don't really let it in. I think I, I don't want to quite go back to that again. I know I'm, I'm, if, 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 if you ever heard of a guy called David Foster Wallace, he gave a commencement address years ago and, um, he tells a story about, about two fish who are swimming along through the water. And this older fish is coming the other way. And as the older fish goes past, the, the, the older fish says to the younger fish, uh, morning guys, how's the water? And then he swims on past. And, uh, the, and the younger fish, the first fish says to the second fish, what, what is he talking about? What's water? You know, 
like they can't even see the water that they're swimming in. So the nice, the nice thing is that I've come away from the water. I'm now kind of putting my toe back in the water again and I can kind of see it. I can see some of the aspects of practice that I like and I can see some of the aspects of practice that I, that I, that I don't like so much. So I'm, I'm kind of, it's, I'm at this nice point where I'm just coming back into practice properly again and my wife's feeling better and the, the law course is finishing and I'm, I'm not really wanting to be super busy again. I'm not wanting extra responsibility. I know I have that tendency. So I'll probably pick things up as I go along and, and to come back to that kind of second mountain idea, it's that, you know, I'm what 54 now. So, it's that accepting that I actually am a senior person now in the hospital and kind of deciding what that means and how I, how I want to be, because I, I don't think I'm going to be practicing past 65. So I'm, I'm now looking at the last 10 years of my career. So I kind of have to decide what, a, what do I, what do I want to, to, to be in that time? It is nice just to come back and just seeing patients again in clinic, same as always, booking surgeries. I had my first call shift actually just on Saturday. So that was, that was interesting, but, but, but nice actually to kind of reassure myself I can still do that. It's just nice to be back being a, being a surgeon again. Well, it sounds like your, your sabbatical pause was really at the, and again, not surprisingly knowing you, it was right at the right time in the arc of your career. That, that's amazing. But the last sabbatical question I, we wanted to ask you specifically was, do you have any advice for surgeons who are contemplating doing this? They're looking at their own lives and thinking, can I, can't I, should I, shouldn't I? Um, what are your thoughts and, and what do you talk to them about in the back hall quietly? So I would say my, my, I, I would, my advice would be only, only two words, right? Like just, just do it. Like if, if you're thinking of doing it, get serious about it and actually say, right, I'm going to take a period off. And I mean, I, I took a year because I thought I, I may not get a chance to do this again. So I, I'm going to do it properly. I don't want to do it for three months or six months. And especially if you're going to be traveling internationally and spending time with family like we were, I, I thought we want to do it properly. So 12 months was the maximum allowed. So we decided to, to take it. Um, the other thing I think is, you know, there is a kind of financial aspect to it. Like, like people are worried. Well, you know, I won't be, I won't be making money. And certainly, I mean, I, I made less money last year because I wasn't seeing patients all the time. Um, but to be honest, if you, if you talk to people at the end of their lives, they don't say, you know, oh, my big regret is I should have made more money. Right. Um, so I think most surgeons that I know are very well off, pretty privileged. I don't think money should be a, a big concern. In fact, if if the money that you're earning isn't giving you the freedom to do the things you want to do and be the person you want to be, why are you working so hard to make it? I mean, I, I sat down with my accountant recently and she looked at all the figures and she said, tell me again, Dr. White, why are you still working? You don't really need to be working, do you? You should probably be slowing down. So it really shouldn't be a, about money. And I think people will tell you it's about the money, but it, it's not about the money. I think it might be about the third thing, the the third thing is, and, and this is this is a serious concern, I think sometimes people don't know what they would do if they weren't just working hard every day. I think there's a little bit of of fear there to say, well, who am I if I'm not a surgeon? I was I was in a room with somebody yesterday. I was um, in the hospital, and the nurse said to me, "There's a doctor in the in the next room. He's celebrating his 80th birthday this month. Eight zero. Uh, and we were chatting to say, well, I don't want to be that guy, right? And we were wondering why 
someone like that is still practicing at that age. And we're kind of wondering, well, you know, maybe he's afraid that, that you know, what would he do if he wasn't coming to the hospital every single day? So I, I think the thing that I found out about sabbatical is, and in fact, I used to have that fear too. I kind of thought, oh, like I'm going to have to retire eventually, but it's going to be awful. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to sit up, look out the window all day. It's going to be terrible. I'm just going to get old and die, right? That's not going to happen at all. I've discovered I have lots of interests outside surgery and lots of things I want to do. And uh, like a sabbatical is almost like a like a practicing for, for retirement to say, well, what are the things that I want to do that don't involve going to the operating room every day? So I, I think if, and not a lot of my colleagues have come up and, and, and questioned me about this yet because a lot of them are, are younger and they're not in an academic position. But my advice would be just do it. Don't worry about the money and, 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 and make it up as you go along. Once you're actually taking a sabbatical, once you're on sabbatical, then you'll figure out what it, what it is while you're doing it, which is what happened to me. Uh, such great advice. The, the last question I want to ask you, you know, after you've so kindly spent the hour with us, and, and again, we know how busy you are and we appreciate you so much, is a question that we ask really a lot of our guests, you've probably heard in closing. And that's it. If you could go back and talk to yourself as a younger trainee or an early career faculty or just earlier stage in your life, what advice would you give yourself in hindsight? Uh, I, I probably, there's probably two pieces of, uh, of advice. And, and the first, actually, I mean, I think, uh, like we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Like other people give us pieces of wisdom that we then pass on. So I, I was uh, working with a guy called Mark Gale, who's an educational psychologist at the U of A. And uh, Mark Gale gave me a great piece of advice, which I have tried to apply, but I'm no good, no good at it, which is to say, this is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Like you don't have to do everything in your first five years of practice. It's okay to kind of slow down and do some other stuff from time to time. And I think I probably made that mistake at the start by taking on too much and doing too many things and just kind of trying to trying to hit everything out of the park and and you know and just succeed in all these different areas. So I think I'd probably say to my younger self, slow it down and don't do so many things and kind of focus a bit. My younger self will probably tell me to get lost, but that's okay. Um, and then the, the other piece I think is, again, probably my, my younger self wouldn't have been able to, wouldn't have been able to hear this, I suspect. Um, sit down on your pillow and do some meditation. Um, because I've, I've been meditating now like every single day. For the last, and I listened to Elijah Dixon when he talked about this as well. I've been doing this for what two and a half years. I started just started during the pandemic, actually September twenty twenty. So it'll be my third year in in September this year. Um, it's really really helpful. Like it's really helpful just to sit there for ten minutes every single morning and just breathe and let your mind settle and actually be here in the in the present moment. And if you, if you read some of the people who have written about this, like, um, John Kabat-Zinn, John Kabat-Zinn says, you know, if you're, if you're looking to change something in your meditation practice, try this thing here and see how it goes for the next few years, you know? So it's a, it's a practice over a long stretch of your life. It's a practice for years and years. Um, so I've only been at it for three years, almost three years so far, but I, I wish I'd, I, I started earlier. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. 
If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.